pray again before we uh, unpack God's word and then I'll try to learn from it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us and I pray that you help me to unpack it uh, well. I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to listen. And I also pray that everyone will laugh at my jokes. Please and I pray. Thanks for the slight chuckle. So today we're asking the question, uh, what does God want? As you can see in the very colorful image we have up there. And we are also asking the question that we all secretly ask behind this question, why should I care? Why should I even care? So what does God want is a really important question. It's a question that people for ages have been asking in one way or another. And for ages, people have also been coming up with answers for one kind of another. So for centuries and centuries, people have been asking, what does God want? And it reminds me of a story. And just full disclaimer, this is uh, not my own story. It's one I've heard a few years ago in a different Bible talk, but it's a good one and it's stuck. And so this is my paraphrase, my colorful paraphrase for today. So it's a, it's a story about an island out in the Pacific, you know, a very beautiful island out in the Pacific Ocean. And see, there are people living on this island. And right in the middle, as you can see, is a volcano. And it's a great big active volcano. And all the people, they're terrified of it. And as you should be, the volcano. Um, I would be scared too. Um, because the problem is, once in a while, the volcano erupts. It spews lava everywhere. It destroys all their crops and their chickens and their, all their livestock. And destroys all the hard work of the farmers on the island. And so, the islanders, they start to think of this volcano as their god. The volcano in the middle of the island becomes their god. And so they feel that whenever the volcano god is uh, angry, it will do all this bad stuff. And whenever the volcano god is happy, it will leave them alone. So what do they need to do? They need to keep their volcano god happy. They, need, they come to the conclusion that if they give the volcano god what it wants, it will leave them alone. And it's, it's a pretty logical uh, conclusion, isn't it? So what do they do? They start chucking in uh, into the crater of the volcano all kinds of things as a sacrifice on a regular basis. Every, every birthday, every anniversary, every Wednesday for some reason, they'll chuck in coconuts, pineapples, even durians. <laughs> <laughs> but the volcano, it still erupts and they have to up their game. So they chuck in goats, crabs, and chickens. But later, <laughs> later in the week, or the month, or the year, the volcano still erupts. So eventually, they decide one day to chuck in one of their own. So they tie up some poor guy who drew the short straw, and they lug him all the way up to the crater. He's super scared, he's terrified, and he's sweating bullets, also because it's really hot up there. <laughs> um, and when they get to the peak, the lava is bubbling, and there's an ominous gust of wind, like sound. And they were just about to toss him in. And the most amazing thing happens. Stop! Who's talking? The volcano. Stop! Have you got any more durians? They were pretty good. So of course, everything changes at that point in the story. When the volcano speaks. What changes? The volcano speaks. Everything changes when the volcano speaks. Because... If you think about it, how would they know, like really know, what their volcano god wanted if it didn't tell them? 
It's an endless and terrifying game for all the islanders until God opens his mouth and tells them exactly what he wants. And in fact, life is a terrifying guessing game until someone who knows what life is all about opens their mouth and tells us exactly what they want. And so that's why we're asking the question today, what does God want? What does God want? And why should I even care about what God wants? So he tells us what he wants right in the psalm that was read out earlier by Jess. He gives us, God gives us his word through the psalmist. And in the last four weeks, he gave us his word through the teacher in Ecclesiastes and also in the book of Mark before that. And through the words of all kinds of genres and people recorded us for us uh, in the Bible today. So we have here today in your hands God's word to us in Psalm 95. So if you have a pen handy, grab a pen. I'll introduce you to the structure in which we'll look at the psalm today. So take a second to grab your favorite underlining pen, whatever that might be. And once you have that, I invite you to draw a line across the page above the number 6, verse 6. It's just above that. So draw a, little, draw a line, horizontal line across the page above the number 6, the verse 6. And then draw a second line above today if you hear his voice, which is halfway through verse 7. Now, if you've passed the test and you've done that correctly, you should have three sections in the psalm before you that I'll step you through today. So three sections. Okay, so section one. Section one starts with an invitation. We're invited to shout joyfully. Not in a meaningless euphoria, but shout joyfully to God himself. We're invited to shout joyfully to God himself. Verse one, God wants us to shout joyfully. But what does it mean to shout joyfully? If your personality is a bit like mine, and you're a bit more mild-mannered and more of like a background kind of artist, you probably don't shout very often. But sometimes I, I do shout joyfully. Like when I'm fired up and I'm winning a game of Dota with my friends. Many of you may not know what this is. <laughs> you might get fired up and we're losing the whole game, but we make a, a spectacular comeback like never before in the history of Dota. But I'm sure there's stuff that you guys get fired up about as well that make you shout joyfully. And so then the question is, how can you feel this way about God? How can you get fired up and excited about God? We'll look down verses 3 to 5, tell us. For, the connecting word for. For he is above all gods and kings and all creation. For God is above all things. God is the one who made every mountain and valley, his hands formed the sea and the land and every ocean trench. The psalmist, he gets fired up about God's amazing creation in verses 4 to 5. Now, I don't cook much, but when I do, it's exciting to see the end product. It's like, wow, I made this. <laughs> if you're curious, I just Googled mediocre meal. <laughs> so how much more mind-blowing, how much more mind-blowing is the view of the sunrise from the top of a mountain? A summit, if you will. Well, how amazing is the view of a clear, starry night sky out in the country? Maybe at Rawson Village, where we're having fun. <laughs> I personally love looking at the view from a plane. And there's one time I'll never forget. Um, I was on a flight from Seoul and Korea to Dubai in the Middle East. And I was listening to some jazz, as you do. Right? And then I pushed the blind up, the little circle window. I pushed it up to have a look out the window. And you'd think that at night you wouldn't see anything out of the plane window. 
normally be pitch black. But I did see something. I saw, with my own eyes, the snow-capped Himalayan mountains. It was, hands down, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. The snow-capped Himalayan mountains. And it might not have been a, a, a joyful shout I gave on the plane, but it was like a, whoa, kind of moment. And actually, that's what God wants. He wants us to see his power and his glory and to say, yeah, and also to say, whoa. So come with me to verse 4 again. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Because he is the creator God, he wants us to respond to him as creator. He wants us to make a joyful noise because he is our creator. So just one answer for today's question, what does God want, is that God wants a joyful noise because he is our creator. Now he also wants a posture of worship. God wants a posture of worship. So come with me now to section 2 of the psalm. Section 2 invites us again to the same exact pattern. He says, come and let us. Let us what? Worship, bow down, kneel. Now, we don't often physically kneel before and bow down before things in Australia. Um, in countries all around the world, though, um, people bow down and kneel all the time. I got this from Wikipedia. Various tips for how to bow. Muslims, they prostrate themselves, like in number five, um, when they pray at the mosque. And in Japan and Korea, uh, number two is how you greet, um, let's say you meet your friend's parents or your, your teacher. Um, that's, how you meet, that's how you greet them, in number two. And even, actually, even in the West, when a man proposes to a woman in marriage, he traditionally kneels, doesn't he? And if you're lucky enough, in England, uh, if you're knighted by the Queen, you, get, you have to bow as well. You're not standing up for that. And the, in all these contexts, in Asia and in the West, um, the meaning behind the physical posture is actually not too different, is it? Kneeling and bowing, they show submission and respect to someone. But why? Because it is an act of worship. The English word, worship, it actually has its origins in the idea of worth-ship. That's where the word comes from, the English word, anyway. And the marketing team there at L'Oreal Paris, they know what's going on when they say, because you're worth it. <laughs> They're in the business of worship. So why do we bow down and kneel before someone? Because they're worth it. So who are you saying is worth your worship, I wonder? Evidently, L'Oreal Paris, they think you should worship yourself. And in many parts of Asia, it seems like you should worship your parents and your teachers. But who is actually worthy of worship? Who is worth, who is worth submitting yourself wholly to? Who is worth your ultimate respect? And if you think about it, life can actually be a long cycle of trial and error for worship. Maybe uh, you grow up worshipping your parents. You trust in their promises and in their power to make good on their promises. And as you get older, as a teenager, you realize your parents are lame. So you worship your friends. You trust in your friends' promises to you and their ability to make good on those promises. And then as an adult, you venture into a whole new world of endless promises 
and you put your trust in money, education, healthy living, and even in yourself. And your ability to make good on what you promise yourself. That is a way to understand worship, isn't it? Submitting to someone or something by trusting in what they promise and their power to make that promise a reality. Trusting in their ability to make good on their promises to you. So if you go back to our question for today, the second answer to what God wants is that God wants us to worship Him, to submit to Him. And He wants this because we are His people. Verse 6. Verse 6 reminds us that we are kneeling before God, our Maker. He knows us intimately. He knows us because He is our Maker. That's why the psalmist tells us in the next line that He is our God. We are His sheep. We are the sheep in His pasture. What a privilege. God wants us to worship Him because we are in relationship with Him. So if you build on section 1, the mountains are His, the seas are His, but we are also His. He wants our worship because we are His. But is He worth it? What does God promise? And can God make good on His promise? We'll find out in the next section of the psalm. So we continue at the line above verse 8, above the small number 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Firstly, there's urgency there. Today, it says. But also, it's a plea. Do not harden your hearts. What does it mean to harden your hearts? I could give you... I could think of an illustration or analogy for you, but I don't need to because, look down. As we read in the verse, all we need to do is just recall what happened at good old Meribah and Massa, and then we'll know what hardening hearts means. Just remember what happened there, and then you'll know what it means to harden your hearts. Don't, don't worry, I didn't know what Meribah and Massa was either before I looked into it. So the question is, what happened at Meribah and Massa? Now, the psalmist, he is recalling when the Israelites were in the wilderness. It's not long after they were rescued from the slavery, uh, from slavery in Egypt. Um, they're rescued by God. And so you see, what's, here's what happened. You can read it in your own time in Exodus chapter 14 onwards if you like. Thousands of Israelites, they, they're traveling in the wilderness and they're on their way to the promised land. And they've just escaped the Egyptian army. It's right after God famously brings them across the middle of the Red, middle of the Red Sea and safely out of the reach of Pharaoh's armies and his chariots and stuff. And in chapter 15 of Exodus, they sing an epic song, a joyful noise, if you like. In Exodus 15, 2, they sing, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. They sing this in Exodus chapter 15. And it sounds a lot like section 1 of today's psalm. And then, in the, ne- in the very next chapter in Exodus, what happens? They complain. The Israelites complain about food. Exodus 16.3 Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. And again in the next chapter at, at Meribah and Massa, Exodus 17 they say why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us with thirst? Right after the Red Sea rescue 
They saw it with their own eyes. And they sang about it with their own lips. Right after that, they say this to God. So what does it mean to harden your heart against God? Let's take a look at what happened in Meribah and Massa. What does it mean to harden your heart against the living God? Remember Meribah and Massa. And so when, when I went back to Exodus and I, I read all this, God's response in verse 10 doesn't surprise me. Back in the psalm. God's response in verse 10 says, God loathed that generation. If you put it another way, God was disgusted with them. You see, God loves the Israelites. He rescues them, and he is rejected by them. People who have said to me in the past, just talking about spiritual things, that if God showed them a miracle, they would believe. You know, if God showed me a miracle, I'll believe right now. I'll believe. And some people do say this because they're just like the Israelites, they're stubborn and they're demanding things from God. But there are also people that say this because they want a miracle. They actually do want one. Because they need a miracle. They're waiting for God to do something. They want God to fix their life. Um, some people are waiting to be rescued from hunger, from abuse, from brokenness, from themselves. They're waiting to be rescued. And so if you look down and see, let's see if God has provided that long-awaited rescue in the psalm. Let's look at the last few lines in the psalm. In verse 10 again, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the third thing that God wants the third thing from section 3 of the psalm today is for us, he wants us to choose his ways and choose his rest. God essentially wants us to choose him. In our, in our hearts, in our in, very inner being, God wants us to choose him. For the Israelites, um, in their context, they meant that they were meant to choose the promised land and not Egypt. But ultimately, as we see in the psalm, they were invited to choose God. God wants the Israelites to choose his ways and to choose his rest. And for us today as well, God wants us to choose his ways and his rest. So these are three things that God wants from us in Psalm 95. A joyful noise, worship, and a choice. But why? Why these three things? And so there's the second question we asked from the beginning. Why should I care? And the answer is actually, why should I care? Because actually you do care. Whether you realize it or not, you already care about what God wants. And you actually care about it every day of your life. And I've seen it. And so I'll show you an example of how I've seen that you guys already care about what God wants. So have a look at the end of verse 1. Come with me back to the start of the psalm. We haven't looked at this part yet. At the end of verse 1, it says, We care, well, I put in the we care part, because God is the rock of our salvation. I'll explain. We all want 
salvation in one form or another. So if you just take a moment to think about a favorite song of yours, just try to think of a song that you really like, songs that you just go to automatically in here. Okay? You got a couple? When you have a song in there, ask yourself, does this song or do these songs sing of salvation? I mean, if you chose a Christian song, then yeah. <laughs> I got a few examples of non-Christian songs which do sing of salvation. So, here we go. A great exploration into some music. <laughs> Katy Perry. <laughs> Katy Perry sings about self-salvation. This is the, I think this is verse one in the chorus. All right, I'll read it out. Do you know that, I'm not going to sing it. Do you know that there's still a chance, I don't even know the melody very well. Do you know there's still a chance for you? Because there's a spark in you, you just got to ignite the light and let it shine. Just own the night, like the 4th of July, because baby, you're a firework. Come on, show them what you're worth. Make them go, oh, oh, as you shoot across the <laughs> sky, I, I. <laughs> and, okay, if you're old school, if you're not a Katy Perry fan, if you like John Denver, anyone know John Denver? He sings about a place. John never sings about a place of perfect salvation. Country roads, take me home to the place I belong. West Virginia, mountain mama, take me home, country roads. And even when your favorite song has no lyrics, I just put one up, something else up there, right? So there's the endless crescendo of one of my favorite post rock songs. It sends me soaring above the clouds. And for nine minutes, I forget about my 99 problems. And even, lucky last, even the great philosopher, Pitbull. <laughs> he offers his own salvation, doesn't he? Pitbull offers us his own salvation when he sings shots, 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 shots. But none of these songs, all musicians, have the power to make good on their promise of salvation. But God, on the other hand, does have the power to make good on his promise of salvation. He showed his power clearly to the Israelites. So they should have trusted that he would take them into the promised land safely. But what about us today? Uh, we didn't see the parting of the Red Sea or the plagues in Egypt. I haven't even been to Egypt. But elsewhere in the Bible, the author of Hebrews tells us clearly that because of Jesus, this psalm applies directly to everyone hearing these words. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, so then what about us today? Well, God does have the power to make good on his promise of salvation because God already has made good on his promise in Jesus. God has saved us from our hardened hearts. When you trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, don't you know that he took out our hearts of stone and gave us hearts of flesh? See, he, he forgives us and he brings us to the place where we belong, with him. And so he wants us to choose him, to choose his promises, to choose his ways, and to choose his rest. And just like the Israelites did, then we'll make a joyful noise as we sing songs like this one. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all is ransomed home to bring. Then anew, his song we'll sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, thank you for your rest and salvation in Jesus. And so I pray that we will never take this for granted and that we will know you provide all this uh, for your glory and for our good. For Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name we pray.